Hi, I'm Rochelle Jackson, and this is The Crime Couch. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author, and I know who's who in the zoo, the crims, the cops, and the interesting individuals in between. So get comfy and join me here on The Crime Couch. It's going to be one heck of a journey. Chris McNaughton joined Vicpol in 1984 and spent time in uniform before joining the CIB. He worked at South Melbourne, TIG, sex crimes and cyber crime squads. Chris was involved in the arrest of crims such as Victor Pearce, Christopher Dean Binns, Peter Gibb and Heather Parker, but the job couldn't hold him. Chris joined the corporate world and ran global investigations for General Electric before forming his own company, Secmon One. They specialise in fraud, corruption and integrity type investigations. Hi, Chris, and welcome to The Crime Couch. Thanks, Rochelle. Why did you become a cop? It was interesting. I originally wanted to was thinking about joining the Air Force, but I knew a couple of coppers, a couple of uniform guys, and it just seemed like something which was exciting, you know. I thought I'd be able to do some good in the job, and it was something that was a bit more, a bit unusual, so I thought, you know what, that's, that's the job for me. And you didn't have any family member in, in the job? No, no family members. No, we've got no history in the in the police force before or, or since, actually. So just me. You joined the CIB and you cut your teeth as a D in South Melbourne. What did you learn on the street? So in South Melbourne, it was, a, it was an interesting area. Um, we we covered South Melbourne, uh, Port Melbourne, and so forth. And there was, I guess, the the, the type of crooks that we we encountered in those areas were the. The kids of painters and dockers, they pretend painters and dockers. So it was like a village. So South Melbourne and Port Melbourne. So both the crooks didn't didn't stray too far, um, and you know it, it felt like as in the CIB, you know, you controlled that community. It was a, it was a great place to cut my teeth in the CI. You would have had to learn a lot because there's a significant jump, isn't there, from uniform to being a detective? Very much so. You know, you you're giving out. Um, traffic fines and you you know you're going to domestics as a uniform member and you're going you know it's fun because you're going to to the big jobs you get there first and that's always good fun but in the CI of course you know you're doing much more complex matters Um, and I guess from my perspective uh, I was in the uniform at Port Melbourne and I had a couple of great um, uh, mentors there Paul Hollywood and Mel Douglas ex both ex homicide detectives and they probably led me towards joining the CI, but uh, a couple of better mentors you, you just couldn't find. Great mentors. And I imagine you worked with Brian the Skull Murphy? I had a couple of encounters with Brian. So I started actually my first uni- uniform station was Richmond. And Brian was often floating about Richmond doing various, you know, uh, Brian things. But at South Melbourne, um, when he was living in that area, um, I don't know whether he still does, but we had um, a couple of encounters, one of which uh, we had a young uniform fellow come up to the CIB one day and he said, um, we've had an issue um, where some druggies in a, in a back alley and uh, a guy's, an older guy's come out and, and said, look, you guys move on or um, you know, there's going to be trouble. You know, there were some various things said to, the, uh, to, to these two druggies and it was Skull, it was Brian Murphy who was the, uh, the gentleman who'd come out. 
And the young uniformed bloke said, um, I'm going to sort this Brian Murphy out. And I said, well, let's just, let's just take a breather here and let's just, let's just back up a little bit and work out what we're going to do about this because it's maybe not quite as clear as, um, as, as it first appears. <laughs> I certainly wouldn't want to take Murphy on in any capacity. No, not at all. No, I certainly didn't. When you worked, you know, in the CIA in uniform in inner city, you had a lot of dealings with the Pentagles, the infamous family. When you worked in Richmond, I'd imagine, you even had to deliver a death message, Chris. I did. When one of the Pettingills died, the younger younger Pettingill died. I was in the uniform at that stage and and had to go around and uh, and deliver the the message to Kath. And it was a death messages are never nice, and it was it was a you know it was very traumatic for the family. But, you know, so we, we, at Richmond particularly, obviously, you know, the, uh, the Pierce and Bettingills, we, we had a lot to do with them. I remember one night actually driving down one of the streets where, where Dennis had a whole row of houses and he just got out of jail. And as we were driving down, he was outside, he was out the front and he said, hey, boys, come in, come and have a look at what these idiots have done to my, my house while I've been in jail. And they'd concreted a whole lot of the backyard, we suspected, because something was buried there, but that's probably another matter. But, you know, walking into that house, just the two of us at night, you know, following Dennis, and halfway down the hallway, I, I, I remember thinking, I'm not sure this is the best place I should be right now. But anyway, it all turned out, it was, it was fine. You know, we used to see him all the time when he signed on bail every day, so it was all very happy. But, you know, you just things can turn badly really quickly. Certainly can, with, particularly with individuals like that. Another incident I also remember reading about you, Chris, was where were you when the Russell Street bomb exploded in 1986? I think you were fairly close. Yeah, un- unfortunately, it was. Um, I was I was actually stationed at Russell Street at the time. It was a, it was a training station, and I was sitting in the property office with my back against the wall, the front wall between two very very thick plate glass windows, and I I remember the bang. Uh, it was a massive explosion and those two plate glass windows came in and massive shards of glass. Thank God I wasn't sitting in front of the windows. But it's funny, even as a young copper, you know, your instinct, and every copper in the building, your instinct is to is to get out and go towards the smoke and the flames, of course, which is what everybody did. Um, and uh, just a tragic uh, scene, you know, of course, Angela was there and, uh, you know, there's a, a dozen people on the ground is my memory of it, you know. Uh, just a shocking thing, but... Um, yeah, it could, have, it could have ended badly. I mean, it did end terribly for, for Angela, obviously, but a uh, really tragic scene, yeah. Did that sort of set you back a bit, like from a point of view of... Because a lot of members still to this day still regard that as being a real turning point and that was the time when, you know, the war was on. Absolutely. I think it made it a bit real. You know, it was not just we're not playing games here. This is this is real. Your life's in danger at, at various times. And you sort of forget about that. You know, you're doing a, doing a, a raid, doing a warrant or something like that. In in your mind, you've got certain objectives that, you you know, you want to get the door in and you want to you know, make sure you've secured the, the crooks and so forth. And that's all good. But you don't you're not really thinking about the danger of it when you're just about to go through the door. It doesn't really even cross your mind, which is strange, but that that really made it real that day. Well, when you think about it, we haven't really... I think there's been a bombing of a, the Turkish consul general, but really we haven't had an incident like that, thank goodness, ever again, have we? No, we haven't. It's been... But luckily, we don't have that, you know, that sort of level of terrorism in Australia, thank goodness, but to get caught up in that was, you know... Yeah, it's certainly grounding, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. 
how were you involved in the arrest of the infamous crim Peter Gibbs and his prison officer girlfriend, uh, Heather Parker? So we were at, um, I was at TIG at the time, I was at Tactical Investigations Group at the time, and uh, there were a lot of warrants to do, obviously, in uh, after their escape, that day of their escape, so we started doing rolling raids um, that day, um, and we just continued to do raid after raid after raid on various, various um, you know, criminals around the state. Um, so one of the things, one of the bits of information came, that came in was that um, they'd taken a, a little Suzuki, little black Suzuki, and uh, they, they'd departed in that. So it was anticipated that they would go to Heather's, um, one of her relatives' place to pick up her children. That didn't happen, but we were at that address. We, we had that, we were inside the address actually waiting. As we waited there, we saw a little black Suzuki identical to the car that they were anticipated to be driving, drive up the street, slow down, nearly come to a stop outside the address, and we thought, of course, that's them, of course. And then it sort of took off and took off down the street. So, of course, we were off after it. Um, and being that they'd already, you know, shown a propensity for violence and so forth and, and to, to, to fire shots at coppers, um, we took no chances and of course when we surrounded the vehicle I had a shotgun on the, on one side and my partner had another uh, 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 was armed on the other side and we demanded these people get out and unfortunately they were civilians and had nothing to do with the matter and they were quite shaken I must say Rochelle but but um, you know the sometimes you know things just line up and uh, it lined up for them that day we dusted them off and we let them put send them on their way but um, no litigation no, no, well, we dusted them off, it was all fine, everything was all sorry, and you know. But uh, you, you just couldn't have written the circumstances any more, you know, um, any more, you know, to, to, to sort of convince us that was going, what was going to happen. But, you know, we kept doing raids and so forth, and, of course, uh, they were arrested by the SOG uh, later on, that, uh, a few days later. Yeah. I mean, when you think about it, what are the odds of that occurring, oh. of a vehicle of exactly that same number and, and coming down the street at that time? You couldn't have written it worse, I'll be honest. So, um, but you know, the circumstances are that you've got to, um, you know, if we'd given, if it had been Gibbs um, in the car, he, he would have come out firing. So, you know, you just can't take a chance, unfortunately. But um, you know, these things happen sometimes. That's policing. Certainly is, um, Chris. What was the most challenging time for you? You did twenty-four years in the job. What do you reckon was the time that you personally found most challenging, and why? I think it was probably at sex crimes, and I was part of child exploitation working for Chris O'Connor um, at sex crimes, another wonderful investigator. Um, and that's a, that was a tough time. Um, I had children at the time, and you're working on some, you know, some serial offenders and some some long-term pedophiles and so forth. Um, and it's you know you've got to be able to manage that, compartmentalise that if you like that that side of the work, and it's pretty tough. Um, but I figured, I always thought while I was there, I knew I could do a good job there and I'm best placed there, I'll, I'll do that. Um, it got to a point, I did about three and a half years, three and a half, four years or something, something there, and there was a day I thought, this is the day I've, 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 I'm done, I've got to get out, I've, I've had enough, you know. So I went to e-crime e or, or computer crime from that point. But there is a stage, you've got a, you know, you've got a best before date for that sort of stuff. You, you can only last so long doing it, I think. And what... Were the triggers for you or what, what were the signs where you just knew, that's it, I'm done? It was actually a day where we were interviewing a guy 
a pedophile and he was actually he was being more forthcoming he was telling us about stuff we actually didn't even know about now and that was quite different to other other crooks and you know other crooks that would try and mitigate their offenses or deny them or whatever it might be but this guy was was very forthcoming and i had an overwhelming desire um to to leap over the desk and beat him to death <clears throat> and that's the time i thought no time to go um time to go i actually had to, i said i paused the interview I, actually, I left and and took five minutes and came back but I thought, no, that that's a sign. That's it's, you're done here. Yeah. An incredibly challenging role, and I still to this day do not know how detectives manage to deal with what they see. You can never unsee those sorts of things. Chris, in the early 1990s, you were charged in relation to allegations of a serious assault on Richard Victor Maladich, uh, Mad Richard. Uh, what actually happened? So we'd had some dealings with Richard. Um, he was renowned around Port Melbourne, South Melbourne, St Kilda. You know, he, he did security for, for Wendy Pierce for some time when we were doing another job on him at some other stage. Um and he was a, you know, he was a thug and a bully and a, you know, would, would uh, you know, so we, uh, when I was at South Melbourne, we would encounter him every now and again. He would assault someone or, or whatever it might be. There'd be some encounter with him or trying to stand over people. And so we'd, we'd had various encounters with him over a number of years. He was released from Pentridge at the time, uh, mistakenly, um, one night. And they realised, um, justice realised that they'd released him mistakenly and issued a warrant for his arrest. That went up to the majors. They sent it back to us because we knew what he looked like and so forth so to execute the warrant. We went, when we went to execute the warrant or to arrest him, um, it turned pretty ugly, uh, I must say. Um, he, um, it, there was a fight, a fight ensued, as they say. Um, you know, he, he received some injuries. Um, it was all quite justified. Um, unfortunately, one stage he... he Put his own head through a window, um, so which I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. Um, but as a result of that, um, Legal Aid decided to fund a private prosecution against uh, myself and, and three other members, and that was a it wasn't a pleasant thing, I must say. Uh, went to committal, we beat it at committal, um, but it wasn't a pleasant thing. One of the things that um, was really in our favour was Richard exaggerates, of course, and. Uh, the other thing that was was significantly in our favour was he was arrested a few weeks later, as well. And one of the members, one of the detectives who arrested him, had the presence of mind to record the the conversation with him. Um, and he threatened at the time, if you you know if you don't let me go, I'm going to put my put my head through this window. And so you know he had a habit of doing this sort of thing, these sorts of extreme behaviours. But you know I, I do recall during the committal having a couple of sleepless nights. I don't think people understand that aren't in the job, the stress and the trauma that you go through, you complete, you were acquitted, you, you beat it at committal, but it still hangs over you like a, a heavy coat, doesn't it? It's very stressful. It, it is, you know, and you, you know, you've got a family, you know, in front, in front of a magistrate, you don't know which way the committal is going to go. You know, he might, he might decide to put, put it upstairs. Um, so you never know. And if that had happened, you know, it, it severely impacts your career, um, your reputation and so forth. Um, but, you know, what we, we just remained steadfast throughout the, throughout the matter. Um, and, you know, we, we beat it as, as I thought we would. But, you know, it, it still plays on your mind. 
Did the association back you as well? The association were absolutely outstanding throughout the whole matter. They they funded us, they supported us. I, I couldn't say you know anything better about the association at the time. They were, they were absolutely wonderful. Is that what prompted you to leave, or or indeed what did prompt you to finally make the decision that you did in two thousand and seven, Chris? So I guess I'd been everywhere I wanted to go in, in the job. And I finished at e-crime because I, I, I wanted to specialise and I could see that digital evidence and so forth was the place to be. Um, and it also gave me exposure to a whole lot more, you know, sorts of matters that were, were um, you know, crimes and so forth. But mostly being able to support other members, you know, um, and they weren't very well supported in that space. And so it gave me the opportunity to, to actually, you know, help guys out. And that was, that was probably the biggest thing for me. The reason I decided to leave was that um, I guess I'd, I'd done everything I wanted to do and one, once I was at e-crime the only step for me was to become a uniform sergeant I didn't really want to do that I did subbies but I, I, honestly I didn't really want to become a uniform sergeant and I guess it may be a babysitter um, so and once you specialise either in fraud or e-crime or something like that you start to get offers from outside yeah and so I was getting offers from Deloitte and KPMG and all those sorts of firms, which I knocked back because I, I didn't think that was the right spot for me. And then I got an offer from General Electric in the US and I thought, you know what, this sounds like a good job. And, uh, and, I, and I jumped out. I was a little bit naive, Rochelle, I must say. But um, I got out and it was, a, yeah, it was a terrific thing to do. Well, you never know what you don't know until you actually get out there. How difficult, Chris, was that leap into the corporate sector? It's a, a different world, um, and I didn't realise how different it would be until I, you know, made that leap. So, um, you know, the, the the dollars were there. That was the dollars were better. That that's one thing. The lifestyle was completely different, um, and I I realised I wasn't in Kansas anymore when you know my boss at the time, he came into my office one day in the first couple of weeks, and he said to me, "Look, one of the guys on the floor has just dropped the C bomb." We're thinking about walking, and I laughed because I thought, "Oh, you're joking." He wasn't joking. I thought, "Okay, I'm I'm, I'm not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> this is a different world. I better better be, watch my p's and q's." <laughs> yeah. Apart from those sorts of things, what else surprised you? Like, what did you have to learn? What did you have to relearn? There's a, there's a couple of things that um, that were significant for me. One is that, and I guess it's the first thing is that budgets. I had. Mass, access to massive amounts of, of budget you know and this was something new to me you know you struggle for a pen in the job but you know you know purchasing something or doing a project worth two or three or four hundred thousand dollars it's not wasn't an issue you know um but the other thing i guess and i think a lot of coppers downplay this in themselves is that you can make a decision you know you would walk into a meeting and they'd people would be fluffing about and you know, a, a talk fest. No, no, we're making a decision here. We're going this direction, and that was that was the, the distinct thing. And I think that made me stand out from others as well in the corporate world. Is that I'll come in, understand the issue, and make a decision. Let's move. Let's do that. Because you're never going to be 180 degrees wrong. You know, well, you might have to tweak a bit, but you're probably going to head in the right direction. That was, you know, distinctly different. And that's a big factor in the corporate sector, actually, to be able to make decisions because there's lots of fluffers and there's lots of PC. 
Lots of PC, absolutely there is. Um, and yeah, you, you know, the people who, who won't make a decision, they'll have a meeting, they'll have a series of meetings and it never seems to be getting anywhere and there's no traction. No, no, we're just going to do this, you know, and it, and I think it makes you stand out. So, I mean, General Electric for me was a wonderful opportunity because it was such a big company and glo- a global company that it let me you know, work through that organisation and get to really, you know, some really senior positions reasonably quickly. And I think that was it. You know what? You can make a decision. You set up your own company, Secmon One. If I'm a company director and I'm dealing with fraud and corruption, why would I come to you? Why wouldn't I go to VicPol? There's a couple of reasons. Well, first, first, why would you come to me and not to KPMG or Deloitte or any of those companies? And I'm biased, of course, Rochelle, but I, what I would say about that is, firstly, we're cheaper, right? We, we are definitely cheaper. We don't have the, you know, the massive overheads that, are, that are, some of these bigger firms have got, absolutely. Um, but the second thing and most important thing is, you know, we deliver a better product. So when I got out of General Electric and we decided to start Secmon One, I actually said to my business partners, I've got two business partners in the business, I said, we're not doing investigations. We're not doing that, right? We're doing insider threat and we're doing all sorts of other things, but we're not doing investigations. That didn't last, Rochelle. So within the first probably six months, we were asked by a Victorian government department to come and do a a very large investigation for them. Um, They were ecstatic with the results um, and so forth, and that, that... started to snowball rolling and we now do uh, investigations for every government department in Victoria um, and it was because a product that we produced was was better that was you know that was the main main thing I mean dollars is one thing but the product has got to be right what are the biggest risks in today's corporate sector people is the big one at the moment yeah finding the right people um, and so of all the things that that my company does, if we talk about just investigations, finding good investigators is really difficult. Um, you know, guys like Chris O'Connor, I mean, they're a, they're a gem, right? They're, they're just exceptional. You're finding the right people. So coppers just out of the job, they're, they're, it takes, a, it takes a, you know, probably three to six months to, to really sort of belt the copper out of them a little bit, you know, because it's we're living in a different world in the commercial world. You know, there are there are costs and fees and we've got to actually make a dollar out of an investigation. We've got to produce a good product, but we've got to, you know, there's costs. And I think you said it before that you're used to, in VicPol, you've got all the resources that you want under the sun and you could take as long as you like, you know. We can't do that in the commercial world, so there are cost imperatives to that sort of thing. But finding the right people is, is really tricky and when you find good investigators, um, you've, yeah, you've got to hang on to them. Do you miss being a, a cop? I miss the people. Yeah, I do miss that. Um, I was actually in at VicPol last week talking about um, you know some, some jobs and so forth. So we still do work for VicPol. Um, uh, and I, I do miss that. That camaraderie is, is, um, is something that you, you just can't replace. Having said that, a lot of the people I work with and so forth are ex-coppers. So, um, you know, strangely enough. But um, there's that. You, you do miss, you know, doing warrants and that sort of stuff. I, I do miss all that side of things. Um, I don't think I'd join the job today, though. Um, I think it's a different job than it certainly was in the 80s, 90s or 2000s. Um, I think it's pretty tough. Guys who join the job now, I think they're, they're, they're very 
brave. And I thank God they do, but, gee, it's a, it's a tough gig. Guys and girls. Thank you. Thanks, Rochelle. Guys and girls. Yeah, we've actually got girls working for us too, so there's, we're very diverse and, you know, but, uh, yeah, no, it is. It's a tough gig now on the job. Very different world. Well, look, Chris, it's been an absolute delight. Uh, thanks very much for joining me today on The Crime Couch. Thanks, Rochelle. It's been fun. Thanks for joining me. I'm Rochelle Jackson, and I look forward to your company next time on The Crime Couch. Mm-hmm.